This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a very first-time listener here at 88.7 FM, whether you are live streaming through the Internet or listening through the local signal, in South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, this uh, is a program that for the next hour we take your questions regarding Scripture. Maybe it's a personal issue you're facing in your life and you'd like biblical counsel on or a passage of Scripture you're wrestling with. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is call us. Again, the local number, the 843 Exchange here in South Carolina is 525 1859 or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, you're welcome to go on the air live. Many people are just more comfortable dictating their questions, and so we'll take them however you'd like to deliver them. So, Rick, with that said, let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor Darina from Augusta, Georgia, writes, In Matthew 17, verse 21, Jesus said, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. When speaking to his disciples about a demon-possessed boy, that was the reference there. Please explain why this verse is not found in some translations of the Bible, and also why did Jesus, or what did Jesus mean, that some kind of demons can only come out uh, of a person by prayer and fasting? Okay, it's a great question. Uh, let Let me just bring it into the context. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Speaking of this uh, demon-possessed young man, and he said to him, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So he likens faith to that of a mustard seed which uh, in the parallel text it says is the smallest seed on all the earth. And, of course, even that verse has created a lot of controversy. Some have said, well, it's not the smallest seed on the earth. Well, Jesus said it is the smallest seed on the earth, and he's omniscient, and he knows. Now, wait a minute. You say science proves it's not the smallest seed on the earth. Maybe he meant the smallest seed in Israel. No. He uses the word for earth, and that's exactly what he meant, only to discover that what people used to hang around their neck in the 1970s, it was a fashionable symbol for Christian women to wear a small mustard seed and a little glass bulb, was actually not the seed. It was actually the pod. And if you break open that pod, there's fine, fine dust that could literally produce hundreds of mustard plants. And so, um, first of all, let me say that, and, and, and this is an important statement that Jesus makes, because what matters is not so much our faith as it is the object of our faith. And God doesn't want us to look to faith and faith. 
that's self-centered, but to faith in him. Faith looks to the object that is the Lord himself. And then he makes this statement, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So not only is it an issue of faith, it's an issue of faith expressed. Now, in a parallel passage in Mark 9, 29, it says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer. Uh, here in the NASB in 921, it says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer in fasting. And if you're using the NASB, it's in brackets, and it reminds you out in the margin that some older manuscripts don't contain this verse. So uh, that's an interesting argument. It's uh, an issue of what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism is the science, not of uh, looking down on Scripture, criticizing the Scripture, but it's using the term in terms of evaluating the various manuscripts that would produce the original. Because here's the challenge. When people uh, copied manuscripts, they would uh, copy from end to end, Uh, So there was virtually no white space left on your manuscript. In fact, if you look at ancient manuscripts, there were, for the most part, not even spaces between sentences. Uh, In Greek, for instance, the way the sentence is structured would typically tell you whether it's a question, what kind of question, uh, whether it was uh, a statement of what we might call an exclamation mark behind it or just a normal indicative statement. So that's all determined by Greek grammar. Well, the challenge is, is sometimes if a person, a believer, had enough money to be able to buy a piece of parchment, he might want to copy a page of scripture that was very meaningful to him. Maybe he wanted to commit it to memory. And so as he copied that scripture, sometimes he would put his own notes out, not in the margin, but in the same line. And so, for instance, if you look in your Bible, there is probably maybe notes written at the end of a sentence, out in the margin, over a word. And of course, uh, it's much easier for us to do in this day of the printing press and where paper is so inexpensive, but not so easy in that day. So there were situations where a person copying scripture, not a scribe, but just a personal copy, would typically put a marginal note out in the sentence itself contained in the body of the text. And then if I later discovered, oh, you've got a, you have Matthew 17, could I copy it? And then I end up copying it with your note in it, and there's a whole family of manuscripts. So that is part of the reason why sometimes there are verses that are contained and not otherwise contained. But if you'll notice here on the New American Standard, it's in brackets. It's not out in the margin meaning as these expositors and translators looked at all the various manuscripts, they were convinced that this was part of the original. And because it's a part of the original, they wanted to include it not at the base of the page or in the margin, but in the body of the text. And so I take it that this is a part of the original. And then the question, of course, asks, well, what does he mean except by prayer and fasting? Look, even if the word fasting was not attached, as it's not found in Mark 9, 29. But even if it were not attached, it does not change the meaning, because the word that's used here for prayer is that of an earnest, passionate prayer. And in the mind of a Jew, typically earnest, passionate prayer was accompanied by fasting. 
which would explain why in Matthew's account, which is a Jewish gospel, you would have the addition of the two words and fasting, and in Mark's account, not. And so fasting basically was a way in which you intensified your prayer life. It it was a way of expressing the earnestness that you had uh, when you brought a particular need to the Lord. And of course, uh, when you're dealing with someone who's greatly afflicted or greatly sick, there needs to be great earnestness in prayer. And a person who is involved in earnest prayer with fasting, especially in this realm, because they're recognizing the power of the demonic world, see their utter need and dependence upon God to fight on their behalf that this um, kind of demon might be exercised from the individual. So that is a fantastic question. I appreciate it. And uh, Darina from Augusta, I know who Darina is. She comes to our Graniteville campus. We have a campus in Graniteville, South Carolina, that is about 20 minutes from Augusta. So if you know any people in the Graniteville area, uh, Aiken, South Carolina area, Augusta area, uh, Community Bible Church, has a campus there that meets every Sunday at 11 o'clock. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, and Neil from San Padre Island, Texas says, uh, this was actually submitted several weeks ago. So he says, I think you said in one of your messages, Adam and Eve were originally clothed in light. And then when they sinned, the lights went out. Is there any scripture indicating they were originally clothed in light? Well, it's a fair question, and I didn't state it dogmatically. In fact, I was recently listening to a sermon. I don't listen to myself, but it was being played, and this particular phrase came out. So I've said it on a few occasions, and I don't say it, um, this is what the Bible says, but I do say it that You know, it appears that Adam and Eve, it appears that Adam and Eve were clothed in light. Why do I say that? Well, because they're made in the image of God. And part of being made in the image of God is that uh, there are some aspects between his likeness and our likeness. Obviously, we're not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. So we're not saying that we become little gods or that we take on the attributes of God because we do not. But when God describes himself in Psalm 104, uh, it begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. So God covers himself with light. And so what's interesting is that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, but then when sin enters into the world, they become aware of their nakedness for the first time. And so it may very well have been that they were clothed in light. And then when sin entered in, quote unquote, the lights went out. And by the way, this is not some new interpretation. John Chrysostom, who is a fourth century Bible expositor, a, a pastor actually taught verse by verse by verse, affirmed that Um, this was the position that the early church took. So it's what we call an interpretive tradition. And by the way, this is how the Jews understand this passage to this day. Certainly not everything that is written in the Mishnah and the Talmud and 
and other uh, midrash commentaries on the Bible are necessarily true. But still, it is interesting that the Jews take this position that Adam and Eve were covered in light like God was, having been made in the image of light, uh, in the image of God. And then when they sinned, all of a sudden they became quite aware. There was an embarrassment that comes with nakedness, unless, of course, a conscience is so deprived uh, of, of, of truth unless a conscience is so callous, so hard, so seared that they're willing to display themselves in a naked way. That, that's a person who's lost all modesty because they are far away from God. But this couple immediately wanted to cover their, their shame, their guilt, and so they sought to do it on their own. And then, of course, God provided another way. But fair question. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, lose any sleep over that. I wouldn't, you know, die on a, you know, a hill over that. It, again, it's an interpretive tradition when you put the Genesis account together with Psalm 104, among other passages, but I think you can build a case for it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Bill from Stevens City, Virginia, talks about John 14, 28. He says, in it, it says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Would you help me understand the phrase that Jesus is saying, for the Father is greater than I? Could that be a term of endearment since the triune God is co-equal? Well, this is a good question, and uh, where is he coming from? Stephen Stephen City, Virginia. Yeah, Bill, you may not be aware of it, but on Wednesday nights, not sequentially— uh, or, you know, every single week, but I have been doing a course called Basic Discipleship. And for the last three Wednesdays, I just did a handout. It's the fifth of uh, 21 handouts on the doctrine of the Trinity. And we actually covered this first because we looked at one that God is one. Here are Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. The Old Testament and the New Testament both affirm that truth. And then we looked at the fact that the Bible, Old and New Testaments, affirm that God, referencing the Father, is God. That's usually not disputed. Uh, That the Son, the Messiah, spoken of in the Old Testament and um, disclosed fully in the New Testament is God. And that the Holy Spirit, likewise, is God. So all three members of the Godhead. So not only is God one, God is three. And not only is God one and God three, but there's a triunity amongst uh, the Godhead. And so this passage, by the way, is a favorite used by Jehovah's Witness. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, which is kind of an interesting statement, even, uh, you know, all by itself before he says, for the Father is greater than I. And I cover this in my exposition on the Gospel of John. And so sometimes if you see a, a verse and you say, I'm not sure what that means, you might go to search the Scriptures and then search by book, and you'd say, oh, he preached the Gospel of John, which means I preached through every single verse in the Gospel of John, which means you would find an exposition on this. And so they would have rejoiced in the sense that Jesus had left the glory and splendor and intimacy of heaven to come to earth, and the fact that he was going back should have caused them to rejoice. But then he says here, for the Father is greater than I. Um, And when the Bible affirms this, it's not saying that the Father is greater in essence or being 
but the Father is greater in position. And again, the Jehovah's Witness, they foster an old third century heresy known as Arianism, and they say that Jesus is less than God from this verse, therefore he must be created, and he's not God. But from the opening of John's gospel, you know that can't be true. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, we know from verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he's referencing the Lord Jesus. Uh, John 10, I and the Father are one, we're equal. Um, And on and on and on throughout the Gospel of John, the deity of Jesus Christ is affirmed. So you've got to give John some credit here that he's not contradicting himself, even within this chapter where he affirms the deity of Christ in John 14 and verse 9. For there he says, when Thomas says, Lord, just show us the Father, he says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So even within this short pericope of Scripture, Jesus is affirming his own deity. Um, With that said, while the Bible affirms and the Gospel of John affirms the deity of Christ, that the Father and the Son are equal, it's important that we understand that being equal does not mean that they carry the same roles, and the same is true uh, within marriage. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 3, There, Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So when God calls women in the church to recognize the headship of men uh, in a marriage relationship, it's not because he's saying they're unequal or they're inferior. He's just simply saying that God has established an order for all things. And so a wife is no less of a person than her husband in submitting to him any more than when you submit to a police officer that you're less of a person than that police officer is. God has just created a structure of order because God is a God of order. And so, again, what we are affirming here, and the same could be said, by the way, of the Holy Spirit in this same chapter in verses 16 and in verse 26, uh, I'm reading here while we're here, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then he'll say a few verses later here in verse uh, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. And so the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son, and he doesn't act on his own initiative. He receives um, you know, instructions, so to speak, from Christ to reveal the Father. And so when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll lead you into all the truth. And so to say that Christ or the Holy Spirit's subordination to either Christ, or you could really argue dual subordination of the spirit to both the father and the son, which of course split a major realm of Christianity around the year thousand. But in either case, the subordination of Christ to the father is not a denial of their equality. And so to be subordinate, is not a denial that they are equal. Uh, To say that they are not equal is heretical. To say that they share different roles 
is biblical, and that's really what we're looking at here. But again, you might want to explore that bill from Stephen City, Virginia, by listening to part three. I think it's in part three. It's in handout number five, anyway, on basic discipleship. Yeah, he actually does listen every Wednesday evening, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. this came in a couple of weeks ago, so uh, I see. it was before you covered this. Got you. So, okay, all right. enough. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. <clears throat> Good morning. How you guys doing? Thanks for taking my call. Hey, you're welcome. How can we be of help today? Um, so I'm reading Isaiah 42 this morning, um, and I had to give some clarity on a certain verse, 40, Isaiah 42, 4. And it seems as you're speaking of Jesus in the millennial, it says he will not be disheartened or crushed. But then it says until he has established justice on earth. I was curious why there is an until there. It's a great question. So let me uh, let me see if I can uh, respond to it. Again, it's a promise concerning the coming Messiah, and Isaiah manifests two comings of Christ. Sometimes he'll combine them in a single verse, as uh, Christ reveals from Isaiah 61 when he goes into the synagogue at Nazareth, or sometimes he'll speak just of the first coming, like chapter 53 or Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9, or sometimes he'll speak about the second coming in his millennial reign upon the earth. So one of the questions that um, unfolds is, why does the Messiah need to rule the earth with a rod of iron? And this is really what you're asking, maybe not directly. Um, Why does he have to establish justice on the earth? And there's really a twofold answer to this, which I cover, by the way, in my Revelation series, because you have to intersect in Revelation uh, continually with the Old Testament. One of the challenges with reading the book of Revelation is there's at least 400 uh, allusions to the Old Testament, not direct quotes. John never directly quotes the Old Testament, but there are over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. So it has a certain Jewishness to it, which will be very important in the coming kingdom age as the Jews are pouring over the revelation because that's going to be the time of mass conversion amongst the Jews. But at the second coming, remember in the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. In the rapture, you know, we're caught up. We'll see the Lord, and the twinkling of an eye will be changed. But th- So he first comes for his saints, but then he comes back, the Bible teaches, with his saints. And so we will be following Christ. He will go to the Mount of Olives. His feet will literally touch the Mount of the Olives. Um, the uh, Old Testament saints are going to be judged at that point as well as those who have survived the Great Tribulation. And so there's a great separation that takes place at the time of the second coming to the earth amongst people who were alive during that seven-year period. And so, for instance, Jesus describes this in Matthew 25 when he talks about you know, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or sick or in prison and And again, he was saying, when you treated the least of these, my brethren, the Jews, during the tribulation period, then you were really doing it unto me. And so one of the great marks of uh, separation will be how someone treated the Jews during the time of the great tribulation. 
and because only true believers will treat them with compassion and righteousness, even if it costs them their lives. And so Christ will separate the unbelieving nations from believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are converted during that seven-year period. Now, unlike us who will enter into the millennial reign in our natural in our glorified bodies, they will enter the millennial reign in their natural bodies, which is why, by the way, at the end of the thousand years, the devil who has been bound for that entire period is loosed and he's able to tempt the nations of the world. Who is he tempting? He's not tempting people who enter the millennial reign in their natural bodies. He's tempting the children of tribulation saints who are born during that seven-year period. And again, even those believers who enter the millennial reign, they will be in natural bodies. Somehow the curse will be lifted off of the creation so that the baby can play next to the cobra's nest and not be hurt. So there will be a certain um, you know, harmony in the creation itself. People will live long extended period of times, like during the time frame before the great flood. I think you can build a case. You could live a full thousand year period in your natural body. So life will be very different, but people will still have a sin nature. So with that said, even a believer who enters the millennial reign of Christ could express their sin nature during that time frame. Do Christians sometimes get arrested? and do evil things. Peter says they do. Paul affirms it, which he reminds us that just because we are Christians, we can't think that we're above the law, that God put governmental authorities over us to put down evil. And just because we're believers doesn't mean that we can escape that truth. And the same will be true during the millennial reign of the Messiah. There will be believers who might at times do what's wrong, and Christ will immediately rein them in. But I think more than ever will be these who are having children during this time when the whole earth is repopulated. And it will be their children. Not all of them are obviously converted. You say, how could they not be converted with Christ literally, physically, actually ruling from Jerusalem for a thousand years? For the same reason why not everyone was converted when he literally, physically walked in Israel during his first coming and did miracles before people's eyes. And some concluded the miracles were done by the power of Satan and not by the power of God. And it will really show even with the devil bound, how fallen we are and how great God's grace has been to us in saving us. So both the revelation and the book of Isaiah use the phrase that he will rule with a rod of iron. Why? Because there will be people who are unconverted, who are born during the thousand-year reign, and there will be people who will enter the thousand-year reign of Messiah because only believers will enter the kingdom. There will be no unbelievers entering the start of the millennial kingdom, but they'll still have their sin nature, and they can still rebel. And uh, that's why God will say later in Isaiah, if a man lives only to 100 years, he's considered cursed. You know, God's discipline can sometimes take very um, challenging uh, expressions. And so John talks about a sin that leads to death. And Paul speaks about some who are sick and weak and some who are asleep 
those who died. Why? Because they were believers who were living in sin and they came under God's discipline. The only difference is, is the discipline will not be administered from heaven. It will be administered from earth. And he is going to establish justice. Now, this particular verse, he will not be uh, disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. Uh, some also take this in reference to what he will initially do. So when he comes and he rules and reigns, there's a judgment where initially he is removing every unbeliever off the planet. And so when that's done, uh, you could apply the until to that realm as well. But I've given you the bigger answer because he continues to reign with a rod of iron throughout the thousand-year reign that he will have on the earth. That's a great question. I really appreciate it. That person's reading very carefully and thoughtfully, and that's how we need to approach Scripture. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we were talking about your um, basics, your um, study in basics, uh, discipleship, or in the, the Wednesday evening study that you have. And the one particular listener uh, a couple of weeks ago was listening to the part where you were talking about the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so right, they, right. they had this particular question. Uh, Sherry from Kentucky would ask God uh, that you clarify on that topic five, part two, uh, help her get it. She says that the cross-reference between 2 Samuel 23, 2 to 4 and Acts 1 to 6, uh, she didn't uh, really understand that and was hoping you could uh, expand on that. Well, I am pulling up that handout right now, and as I look at it, question number 53, it looks like you read it wrong. Um, it actually says on the handout, and I have the student edition, Second Samuel 23, 2-3, cross-referencing or conferring, CF is a conferre Latin for to compare with Acts, doesn't say 1-6, it says Acts one sixteen. So that's the difference. So in 2 Samuel, what I was trying to do, I don't go through every single text, though I, you know, this handout was 31 pages long on the doctrine of the Trinity. But 2 Samuel 23 establishes that David indeed was uh, a prophet of God. And in Acts 1.16, he's speaking as a prophet of God. And um, then the two passages that follow, uh, Psalm 78 and Isaiah 63, um, again, same kind of parallel made in 78. It talks about what God said. And then in Isaiah, when Isaiah 63 looks back on Psalm 78, he says, the Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said. And so, again, there is an, an affirmation that for the Spirit to speak is for God to speak because the Holy Spirit is God. So it's just, uh, you read it wrong. It doesn't say Acts 1.6. It says Acts 1.16. So look at that, and I think it will be crystal clear to you. Fair question. Let's go to the next. All right. Bert would like you to help him with some resources. Uh, he says, would you please provide some information on, one, living godly as a single man your whole life. As a single man at age 37 and never married, I feel God has called me to be single on the Search the Scriptures website, there are so many great messages available on marriage, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. As God has called most to be married, it's understandable that most messages would be for those married, and I've learned much from them. I think it would be helpful if I could list some messages addressed primarily to single men like myself 
And then secondly, are there any STS messages on the tabernacle and the deeper meaning and symbolism of all the elements and furniture? In other STS messages, it sounds like you taught this maybe many years ago, and God willing, would like to teach it again in the future. And maybe you can share some of these resources taught by another faithful expositor of biblical scripture that is readily available. Well, I, I did uh, teach on the tabernacle in 1990, 91. I'd like to do uh, a series again on it. Uh, there's a book called The Tabernacle by David Levy. He's uh, with an organization called Friends of Israel, which uh, we actually play on WAGP. It's a fine Messianic Jewish organization. That would be a decent little manual on trying to understand the significance of the tabernacle. Uh, another work that I might point you to would be Alfred Edersheim. Now, unlike David Levy, who's very much alive and breathing, Edersheim lived over 100 years ago, and he was a Jew. I can't remember where he was living. Maybe it was Poland, um, but he was a, a Jew who was converted to the Christian faith and so would consider himself a Messianic Jew. He wrote a classic work that used to be required reading in most seminaries called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's still a premier work. Um, but he also wrote a book called The Temple. You say, well, the temple is not the tabernacle. Well, yes and no. Uh, actually, on one occasion, the, uh, the tabernacle is referred to as God's temple, but the parallels are just absolute. Uh, in terms of the layout of the, uh, of the tabernacle, that's the temple in miniature. And so you could take like the center portion of the temple. And if you go to Israel, and by the way, we're going God willing in uh, late September, two trips, one October 28th through October the 8th and another trip October the 7th through the 17th. And so I'll be there for both weeks. And you, if you're interested in that, there's a little video you can watch it, searchthescriptures.org, and it will tell you a lot. In, in Sunday's meeting, where is that? Where can they find that, Rick? Uh, uh, the same place. We've got a singular website that has all the information on the trips to Israel. It's stsisraeltour.com. Thank you. So with that said, if you go to Israel, one of the things that we do is we go to the a museum where the Dead Sea Scrolls are actually contained. It's like Fort Knox. And you also, uh, adjacent to that, you get to see a little museum, an outdoor museum, where a man took 30 years of his life constructing a first-century model of what Jerusalem was like. And it was not just out of his head. It was done with careful research in archaeological digs in uh, writers of the day and so forth. And you'll see a model of the temple and you can pull it up online, but that little center structure is basically the tabernacle, except it's in brick and mortar and it's not in a tent. And that's what David said, look, I'm living in a house and God's out there in a tent. You know, I want to build a temple. Uh, but understand when you do a study on the temple, in terms of the center core of it, you're really doing a study on the tabernacle, and that's why I would recommend Alfred Edersheim's book. I did do a series on the family and a, a message on singleness. It's, uh, again, back in the early 90s, I did a 10-week series on the family. I think it was in 92, but the tape quality was so poor 
uh, we don't have that available, but I should probably do another one just on single men, though I want to affirm you that the fact that you've learned a lot about what God says concerning marriage, and that is certainly the norm, uh, says a lot about you because we're instructed as believers to be able to teach the entire counsel of God. And so that's important. And so as you disciple people, you should assume that most of the people whom you will disciple will someday get married, and you want to be able to teach them what God says in the subject. And and sometimes, you know, I think of uh, John R.W. Stott, who's been in heaven now for maybe 10 years, I'm guessing. Uh, he was a great Bible expositor and pastor. Uh, he wrote like 30 books in his lifetime. And I often wondered, how on earth could he find time to write all these books? And he didn't have a ghostwriter who did it for him, who took his sermons and then you know, put it into uh, commentaries, as uh, many popular writers do today. But he did it all by himself, and then I met him on one occasion, and I learned for the first time he was single. And that was back in the 1980s that I met him. He actually came to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I was serving as a campus pastor. It was actually 1979 that he came there. Um, But he was a phenomenal pastor, and someone might say, well, how could he speak authoritatively to all the marriage cu- married couples? Because he's speaking from the Bible. With that said, um, there is a book called Whole in Christ, A Biblical Approach to Singleness that I recommend to people. And uh, there is multiple authors, one of whom is my son-in-law, Grant Castleberry, and another good friend named Owen Strand. you His name doesn't sound like it's spelled. It's S-T-R-A-N-C-H, but it's pronounced Strand and Grant Castleberry, and there's like three other authors, but it's called Whole in Christ, A Biblical Approach to Singleness, and I would highly recommend that book. That would be an excellent resource for you to have. And two, you know, let me just say to those who are listening who are married, sometimes we are quick to want to marry off single people like we almost feel sorry for them like hey we got to find someone that this guy or this gal can marry when in reality god may not want them to be married not because they're weird or anything but god gives some people a giftedness it's not like a spiritual gift something that god does through you based on first corinthians it's something that god does to you first corinthians 7 and paul had this gift so to speak where he could be single his entire life. And Paul said, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because some people whom God has created in this way, as believers, they can give undistracted devotion to the kingdom of God. And that's a magnificent thing. All right, let's go to the next uh, question here. All right, Stacy from Beaufort says, will you please help me explain to my sister that there will not be a second chance for salvation after the rapture? The Bible verses I believe that say this are Second Thessalonians 2, 9 to 11. Are there others? Well, the principle that someone who is given revelation and they suppress it long enough can actually shut themselves down to future revelation. And so we don't come to Christ in the timetable that we choose. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. We come to Christ in the timetable that God chooses, and God warns, my spirit will not always strive with men. And so if you remember in John chapter 12, 
here's a beautiful example where the principle is established. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's referring to himself. He has already said, I am the light of the world. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And so light is used not only in reference to Christ, but to um, define moral righteousness, but also to describe information or revelation that God has given. And so he's asking them to respond to himself, who is the light, and the revelation that he has brought as the, as the Christ, as the Messiah. And he warns to respond so that darkness will not overtake you. Then he will say, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Uh, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, and it's the Greek word samion, which means um, basically a miracle with a message behind it. So John uses this word sign to define a miracle. There are other words for miracles like dunamis that describes, you know, the power of a miracle. We get our word dynamite from it or teros, which describes the wonder a miracle produces. But he uses the word samion, sign that has a message. So John very carefully selects seven miracles from the life of Christ, five that are unique to his gospel to underscore that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, at the end of the gospel, he says many other things I've got written about, but these I wrote to you that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. And then the text says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah again has said, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. So because they would not believe, they came to the point where they could not believe. And Jesus reminds them that this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah had predicted would happen amongst many of the Jews at his first coming. And this uh, is quoted in Isaiah 53 in the opening verse of that chapter. And then he'll say in verse 40, also from the prophet Isaiah in the sixth chapter, uh, that because of their unresponsiveness, God judicially blinds their eyes, hardens their hearts so that they may not see with their eyes and perceive and uh, with their hearts and, and be converted. So you can't just keep putting God off and putting God off and think, well, when I get around to it, I'll become a believer in Jesus. And there are people like that every day. They think, well, I have some living to do and I want to live in sin. And little do they realize that they are resisting the Holy Spirit. And you can resist the Spirit of God. Stephen underscored that in his sermon to his Jewish brethren. He said, you're stiff-necked just like your uh, ancestors always resisting the Holy Spirit. Well, the greatest expression of what we read in John 12, and by the way, in the parable of the sower, Jesus affirmed this same truth, that a person can reach a point of no return, and only God knows who that is. I can't make that judgment. You know, many people would have thought that maybe Saul of Tarsus had reached that point. 
but of course he was still converted and he was not seemingly neutral. He was a man who apparently was on the other side. Um, some might have thought the thief on the cross had reached that point. Uh, but in the last breath of life, he calls upon Jesus and salvation. So only God knows the people who have reached that point, so to speak. But in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, which are really an explanation to Matthew 12 in terms of what's going to happen to the kingdom in light of the fact that the Jews had officially rejected it, one of the parables he tells is the parable of the sower. And he speaks of the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the, or excuse me, before that, he says, um, and when someone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. And so in this first soil, the soil that he describes here is someone who doesn't understand the word. And the reason they don't understand the word is because of a hardening of the heart, because of choices that they have made. And the devil is given permission to snatch the seed. And Luke affirms that they might not believe and be saved. And then, of course, the greatest expression of this in a wholesale way will be in the future when the Antichrist steps on the scene. And that's really what this passage is looking at. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure by a spirit. You know, someone stands up in the service and they say, I have a word of prophecy or a message or a letter as if it was written from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And obviously, some in Thessalonica were shaken and they had thought, well, maybe we misunderstood Paul. And we missed what we thought was going to happen before the day of the Lord. And so he makes it very clear, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That is the day of the Lord, which he's referencing back, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So he's not talking about our gathering together, but this coming day of the Lord. And it's going to kick off with a covenant that the Antichrist is going to make shortly after the church is raptured. He will step on the scene, and he's further described as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple displaying himself as being God. And Paul is speaking, of course, what Jesus referred to from the prophet Daniel in the ninth chapter that he covers in the Olivet Discourse in passages like Matthew 24, what's called the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple and desolate it. He will claim himself to be God. And Paul says, look, you can't be in the day of the Lord because the apostasy of all apostasies has not taken place, and nor is the lawless one uh, on the scene. So you didn't misunderstand what I think. But then he what I taught. And then he goes on and he says, um, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know, what restrains him so that in his time, he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the Holy spirit is restraining him largely through his presence in the church. The church is going to be removed 
In that sense, the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth. Will he still work during the time of the tribulation? Of course. He will work during the time of the tribulation period, just as he will work during the millennial reign of Messiah, when the children of tribulation saints will need to be converted. And we cover this in great detail in the course on pneumatology that you can also listen to at Search the Scriptures. And then he says, um, then the lawless one at the second coming will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And that's, of course, precisely what the Revelation teaches, that the Antichrist will be slain. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. So he comes in the place of Christ. He's an Antichrist, is the opposite of Christ. And Jesus, who did power and signs and wonders, the Antichrist will do them, but by the power of the evil one, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. So he's describing about people who were unresponsive to the Holy Spirit, who will be responsive to the Antichrist. And they will believe in the deception of wickedness, and they will perish. Why? Because they did not love the truth enough so as to be saved. And there are people just like that today. And they may even hear pastors like myself speak of a coming rapture, and they think, well, you know, if the rapture happens, then I'll know Brogy was certainly right, and I'll believe in Jesus. And the reason they won't respond now is because they love sin too much. It's the same principle Jesus taught right after John 3.16. Men, because they love the darkness, and the word there is agape, so to speak, if we can anglicize it, agapao, willful love. It's not only used to describe God's love for the world by sending his son, it's also used to describe man's love for sin. It's a willful kind of love. And so for this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And so God will, as a penalty, harden their hearts, blind their eyes, and so they will believe what is false. Because, again, you can't come on your timetable. If you say no to God long enough, he'll basically say no to you. Will there be people saved during the tribulation period? Probably the greatest revival in all of human history. In fact, uh, when Jesus in the Olivet Discourse speaks about his second coming, he prefaces it with a sign, and this is not a sign for the rapture, but for the second coming, and he makes this incredible statement, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. He's talking about what is going to be fulfilled during the tribulation period. The gospel will go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and God will use uh, the Jew to do that along with two witnesses, along with an angel who will preach the eternal gospel. So um, we don't have forever to respond. Uh, Today is the day of salvation. If you're listening to me and you're not sure you're saved, you should get that settled. And if you're not sure how to get that settled, come Thursday night to meet the pastor at Community Bible Church at 7 p.m. The meeting will last one hour, and I will explain how to know that you know that you know that you're saved. And there's a lot of folks out there 
that Jesus spoke of who think they're saved, they would say they're 100%, can even give right answers, but they have a false assurance. So that's Thursday night at 7 o'clock coming up. Okay, we've got about four minutes. Hopefully we can get this uh, out. Kelly from Georgia would like your advice on the corona vaccine. How do you feel about younger adults, those of childbearing age, getting the vaccine? Different articles have been written about harmful things in it. Do you want your children to get the vaccine, and do you recommend for them to get it? Do you in your gut feel that it is safe for all aged people? I know it's not been expanded to younger people yet, but if they are a healthcare worker, et cetera, these younger people can receive it now. Do you think it's fine to get? I do. I don't have any reservation at all, at least the ones that have been approved at this point. There's no, like, aborted fetal matter babies in there, and there's no, you know, injection of... Uh, some chemical that's going to alter your DNA. It's not the mark of the beast, like we're being tricked into doing something, you know, that's against our will. People aren't tricked into receiving the mark of the beast. They willfully choose it because of their rejection of the love of the truth. Uh, Not to mention, um, you know, yeah, all my children are planning to get it. Uh, All my adult children in their 20s and 30s, they're all planning to get it. And I don't think that there is any credible evidence to say that this is going to make you, you know, sterile or anything like that. Um, With that said, um, in addition, if you want to be able to travel internationally, you probably will not be able to. And it appears, though it's not set in concrete, but it may come down to the point where you won't even be able to get on domestic flights without it. That's still up for debate, but it appears in many countries of the world you will not be able to travel to those nations unless you have been vaccinated. And again, none of that is in concrete yet, but this is all under discussion. It appears that is what is going to happen, and you can understand why. But no, I have no – listen, you're talking to someone who's never had a flu shot in his life. I just, by God's grace, don't typically ever get the flu. I very rarely get sick. Sometimes I get a little cough when I haven't had enough sleep for – two or three weeks in a row and I get enough rest and the cough goes away. But for the most part, by God's grace, I don't really get sick, but I'm going to get the flu shot. I mean, this vaccination, because this is different. This is different than a flu. It's a severe flu and it's leaving some people with some permanent disability, uh, some neurological problems, some uh, lung problems, some lung scarring, uh, some, some people, I think I've read as recently as 30% of the people who have had it with symptoms. And I say with symptoms are still tired six months later. Uh, so, you know, there's some unknowns to it. So if you can get vaccinated and protect yourself to me, that's a stewardship issue. And, uh, that would be good stewardship, but I would certainly not judge someone if they say, I I don't want it. That's, that's your choice, but I'm going to get it and I have no reservations. Well, okay, we've got about uh, 50 seconds. Uh, you want to give another promo for Wednesday evening and meet the pastor this Thursday? Yeah, so um, we'll, we'll come back a little bit later uh, on the Basic Discipleship Series. Uh, this Wednesday, one of our pastors, Jeff Lawson, is doing a two-week series on the tabernacle. Uh, not really the sacrificial system, which includes what went on in the tabernacle. And then uh, if you are interested in going to Israel with us, we have two weeks, uh, late September, early October. They expect to have all of Israel vaccinated by the end of March. That's what the Wall Street Journal reported a couple of days ago. So it'll be a really great place to, to go. But if you want information on that, 
uh, go to searchthescriptures.org and you can uh, get all the information you need. We also have a place where you can call with questions. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great day.